David, welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. I am so happy you agreed to speak with me because it was a cold outreach email. I love the internet that exists today because I literally was reading an article and then found the research paper and I was like, who are these people on the paper? And thank God for Google. I know everybody's talking about ChatGPT, but Google is still helpful in this. Allowed me to find you. And universities are great because if you don't know it, they put most individuals who work in a lab, their emails online and on the public. So I don't know if you want me to openly share that or not, but you guys are out there ready to be contacted. And I'm so excited to talk about your research because I think this will interest a lot of people in the field and hopefully solve some problems for a lot of individuals. So thank you for taking the time to come and chat. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm happy to start wherever you want. Maybe it would be best to go over just kind of the basics of what we do in the lab and how we got to ultimately the, the work that you are most likely referring to when you said you read something more recently. Yes. So yeah, just for all our listeners, it'd be great to just share one individually, like what did you study? How did you get interested in this space? And then what did I study at the lab? And we can dive into some of the particular research that you're working on today. Great. Yeah. Happy to do so. So for me personally, I have always been interested in, or I guess not always, always, but for a very long time, been interested in computer, computer science, you know, coding, programming, and also biology, but from a clinical angle. So. There are a few ways where these two fields intersect and overlap, but I felt really drawn to neuroscience because there's a lot of, um, especially, I guess what we say, like kind of systems level neuroscience, where you're not on the cellular level, you're kind of at a, a higher level looking at patterns of brain activity during, you know, across various subpopulations of neurons and, and just trying to make sense of these patterns and understanding how know how the brain works basically and so that was really nice for me to to be able to find this what i felt like was a calling in my roughly like junior senior year in undergrad getting a bioengineering degree and i tried to stick down this route and apply to graduate school and i was listening there was this great seminar class on brain computer interfaces. And this is something that I thought that I was really interested in at the time. Um, all I was thinking of at that time were these really cool applications where someone has a brain implant and they're able to control like a robotic arm. You know, you've seen these videos perhaps. And, and I just remember being fascinated by that and be like, I want to work on this. And then I, I heard a talk in uh, my first year when I was doing rotations from Dr. Edward Chang at UCSF. Well, he was describing how their lab studies speech. And I had never really thought about this as, you know, I didn't know it was this huge and rich research area. And there's so much that we've learned and so much still to learn um, about how the brain processes speech. It just never really, you know, I, I never really thought about it that deeply before. And then I was super interested and rotated in his lab and I'm still here today. So that was you know, six years of PhD, and I'm now about four years, a little over four years into a postdoc. So, um, obviously it was very compelling for me. And so th that's kind of my journey of getting to this research group and to talk a little bit about, you know, I said that we study speech, but in particular, there are various areas of the brain that we know are engaged as we hear speech. And as we speak ourselves, and there's just so many questions because of its ties to not only the, you know, acoustics of speech production or our hearing speech, but also the linguistic information, semantic information, you know, how does, how do you disambiguate meaning from language, from speech? And there's just so many interesting research avenues. Um, and I was. You know, I was personally mostly on the engineering side, though my fascination was with we we are starting to learn the neural code for how, for example, 
certain brain patterns give rise to like the vowels and consonants in English. And like, you know, you can map and model these patterns and how they result in different sounds um, and result in different meanings. And that, you know, there's some really smart people in the lab who have worked on that and who continue to work on that. But my focus has been on the decoding side, as we kind of refer to it, which is if you have the brain activity and you know that there's a mapping between certain patterns and certain sounds, then can you actually decode what someone was saying from the brain activity? And this was kind of a major focus of my work during my PhD, not just that, but also getting it to work in real time. And so like for my thesis project, the culmination was someone was listening to questions and responding aloud. And we were, you know, I implemented a system where I could decode what they heard and what they responded with just purely from the brain activity. And this, to give you a little bit, I haven't spoken about the actual interface. The interface that we use is, um, we're really, really fortunate to work with epilepsy patients who come in who have intractable epilepsy that can't be cured or uh, managed by medication. And so what happens is the neuros neurosurgical unit and the neurological unit will you know, work together and the, the surgeon will implant a sheet of electrical sensors over the surface of the brain. Mm -hmm. And this will help the neurologist understand where the seizures are coming from. And then the surgeon can then go in and remove the part of the brain that's causing the seizures. And this works fairly well on average. Um, it's really incredible uh, treatment. And a lot of the patients themselves are incredible because while they're there waiting for seizures to occur naturally so the neurologist can study them, they volunteer in our speech studies. So during my thesis, that's what um, I worked with these, yeah, really willing and generous uh, volunteers to to show that someone who can speak, we can decode what they're hearing and saying from the brain activity in real time as they're hearing and saying it. And go ahead. Yeah. May I just add, this is a really big breakthrough for individuals, I feel like, because, you know, as you mentioned, we've had, and you can give me how many years, but we've had brain computer interfaces that could control kind of gadgets, right? Like control parts of an arm or move objects. But speech was like this frontier that hadn't been crossed, right? Kind of similar in like the GPT space, right? Where it's like, once we unlock speech, I think we've all just got a taste of it, of just like how much we as humans rely on speech and communication, right? It, it really opens up worlds here. So this is a major breakthrough. Um, and I would guess too, for the individuals with epilepsy to feel like they have a portion of their life back, right? And to be able to communicate. I mean, not only just a breakthrough technology wise, but just a breakthrough for individuals in their lives and making their daily life better in how they interact. Well, I should say, you know, there's probably another chapter of the story that kind of current, <laughs> the one before the current one, um, which is important. To say, like, to emphasize the epilepsy patients, they are, they are able to speak and communicate and, you know, they have seizures, which reduce their quality of life because it, it means that oftentimes they can't drive, you know, their independence is reduced. Um, it can be difficult to go, uh, you know, out into and, and socialize. There are just, it's, there are difficulties associated with having epilepsy, um, but for our goal, the next step from the, from my thesis project, it was to say, to help actually, as you're referring to the people who truly do need this, which are folks with um, severe paralysis. So those are, th that was one, that was kind of the, the main question for us. It's like, we know that when someone who can speak, we can make these mappings and do these decodings, but what happens if we, what would happen in the brain of someone? who's unable to speak because they're paralyzed. If they have some disconnect between the part of the brain that normally controls the vocal tract and the vocal tract itself that prevents them from just getting speech out. Like they know what they want to say. They're cognitively intact and aware, but they just can't say it because of just like muscle paralysis. 
and this kind of disconnect between the brain and, and the vocal tract and their articulators. And so our goal was to see, well, can we design the brain computer interface to bypass that paralysis and just decode their attempted speech directly from, from the brain. And that is, so that line of research is what we hope will ultimately be helpful to individuals around the world who struggle with speech and communication and uh, who are unable to speak. Um, particularly also for those who are unable to type either, because if you can't speak or type or, you know, move your arms or hands meaningfully, then it just, it becomes incredibly difficult to communicate and to get your sense of independence and, you know, participate in, in social interactions and express yourself. And even something as simple as like navigating a computer, you know, reading emails, sending emails and things like that messages. So this is the, this is the patient population that we really want to help. And that's why we started this clinical trial to actually work directly with these patients. And that brings us to the paper that you read with the news story, where we show that someone who was, who was unable to speak due to paralysis, they had a brainstem stroke and they're no longer able to speak. We show that with this brain implant, similar to the ones that are used in the treatment of, of epilepsy by the neurologists and the neurosurgeons, um, through this type of implant, we investigated, we looked for neural patterns associated with what they were trying to say. And so we have this participant named Pancho. He's really amazing, really, really great guy, very smart. You know, he taught himself English after he became paralyzed, unable to move his hands and arms and legs, unable to speak. And he had his friends and family like help him learn English because a lot of the assistive devices right now are mostly, uh, it seems the functionality is strongest for English to my understanding at least. And so he thought it would really help him express himself if he learned English because it's, you know, he couldn't speak anymore. And so th that's just to give you a sense of how like incredible this person is. And he volunteered for the trial, had this brain implant and we searched for like, as he's trying to say words, can we see differences in his brain activity from all these sensors? We have 128 sensors on the surface of his brain. Can we learn? how to decipher these complex patterns across these many electrodes all happening at the same time. And we, and furthermore, no one had even known, like there was not clear that someone who was unable to speak anymore when they tried to speak, like what, what is still in this part of the brain, you know, the speech motor cortex, that's the area of the brain that is really implicated in speaking. And it wasn't clear or, or shown or demonstrated that someone who hasn't been able to speak for 15 years would still have this, like a rich functional mechanism of an encoding of speech in this area. And that is what we found. And we were able to use that to enable, um, communication by simply, he simply tries to speak and our brain computer interface decodes his brain activity into what he's trying to say. Um, it's not perfect, currently very limited to 50 words vocabulary. Um, that was the first demonstration. And then just really briefly, I'll say we, we have another publication late last year that came out that shows that he can communicate using kind of NATO code words to, to represent letters. So alpha, bravo, Charlie, and he can use this to spell out sentences from over a thousand possible words. And the accuracy was, was quite high. Um, so it's about 90% accuracy. So it's a little slow though, because he is spelling. But both of these, I think, were major advances for this field of what we're calling like speech neuroprosthetics, which is speech, speech-based brain-computer interfaces. Yeah, it's really, truly incredible work. Uh, and it, I have so many questions. So one is you talk a lot about the decoding, right? So we have this sensor with 128 sensors that gets implanted in the brain how much how much data is coming out of that right and this is just sensing us just a portion of our brain right is the decoding process is it difficult because of the amount of data is it difficult because of the amount of noise like what was the hardest what's the most difficult aspect in that decoding side that's a really great question i mean i think that 
there were a lot of limitations. A, a major one, I'll focus on two right now. A, a major one is limitations of data quantity. Um, you know, our sensors are able to generate, you know, we have 128 channels sampling at about a kilohertz. So it's a lot of data, but still, like if you compare to, you know, any of these state-of-the-art machine learning models that you can think of that are in the, you know, in the press today that are in the kind of public eye today, these are all trained on millions, if not more than millions of data points. Um, and there's just so much data that can go into these models. And really it's, it's basically impossible for one person with one brain computer interface to generate that much data. So that is a huge limitation. Um, I would say the other major one is more fundamental to the biology. It's there's no, currently there is no perfect brain computer interface. Um, if you could record somehow from every neuron in the brain, you know, there's, you know, obviously billions and billions of neurons in the brain, but if you could somehow record from all of them at the same time across many, many, you know, days for one person, then you probably could more or less like solve this problem to a, you would be able to decode perfectly perhaps. Um, if you also try, I mean, there are some other caveats there, but you get my point. It's, you would just have an incredible amount of data and you would have full understanding of the system more or less, but you know, that's not practical. That's not feasible. So every brain computer interface right now has its positives and negatives. Ours, ours is called electrocorticography or ECOG. You can think of it like an EEG, but on the surface of the brain itself. So, you know, it has to be surgically implanted. And the limitations are that we don't record individual neurons. We record from small populations of neurons, but this could be, you know, thousands of neurons in each electrode and you're getting kind of this local population level activity. And mm -hmm. so the advantage though, is that we can record from a broad coverage of the cortex. Uh, and this is important for basically gaining access to distributed representations. So neural patterns that aren't in just one spot, it's in many spots throughout the speech motor cortex, for example. So that's kind of our trade-off. But of course, that means that many of the neurons that are part of the signal we're getting are not really related to the task or they are, or to the attempted speech, I should say, or they are in some complex way that is beyond our understanding or our model's ability to understand. So in that sense, there is noise, right? There's a lot, there's a, a major portion of the signal that is not directly relevant to what we want to, to study. And so I think these two things together make it quite challenging. Um, and these are both things, by the way, that will continue to be optimized in the future. Um, there's ways to, for example, apply what you learn with one person to another person. So there's a way to do some kind of transfer learning between users. Um, it's not, you know, completely like, oh, take this model, put it in this person and it works. There's, but it does help as opposed to starting from scratch. And then hardware is always being improved. People will continue to work on hardware and also just like data processing and like modeling the signal itself. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but I would say these are the big limitations. One of the things that was mentioned in the paper was the use of deep learning models. And if I remember correctly, there was a chart where how many words were decoded and then how many words were decoded when you applied the deep learning models over it. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of these models and how are they used? Sure thing. Yes. I think the deep learning, I mean, when we think back about what is enabling us to do this research, like why couldn't it be done 10 years ago? I think a lot of it has to do with what we've learned about the brain, um, in the past decade, but also a lot of it is to do with, and, and hardware improvements too, but the algorithms and deep learning, I mean, it's been tremendously valuable for us to more or less repurpose models and advances in machine learning and, you know, speech recognition, language modeling, and use those for this brain computer interface application. Uh, and so in that respect, 
I would say that there are three for this first, for this first publication where we show that this is possible. There are three deep learning. Well, there's really two deep learning models that we use and then a language model, which actually was not a deep learning model. Um, the first two were to detect when the participant, when Bravo, uh, we sometimes refer to him as Bravo one, but we can call him Pancho. That's what he prefers to go by. So when Pancho was attempting to speak, we can actually detect that attempt from his brain activity. Mm. And then that's, so that's what one model's job was, is to find those time segments that were like, okay, he's trying to speak during this time segment. And then the, the other crucial model was the, uh, what we call the word classifier that was taking in that brain activity and trying to find out how likely it was that he was trying to say each of the possible words. Mm -hmm. So in this first work, we were, we used the 50 word vocabulary and the model would then take in neural, you know, neural features, brain, brain activity and output, basically a likelihood, uh, a list of likelihoods across the 50 words. How likely was each of the words as the target that, uh, Pancho was trying to say. And then the way the language model comes in, as you're referring to, this was a, it wasn't a deep learning model, but it was kind of a simple language model that basically tried to use the statistics of English to improve what we decode. And this is extremely important. And I suspect will continue to be very, very important, um, to the field as we move forward, because again, these language models, they can be trained on millions and millions of data points. It doesn't need to be trained using the same user. So this is, this is a really valuable resource that we can pull in, um, as other people are developing and optimizing and we can apply it to, you know, we, we optimize a little bit of course, but we more or less can apply it to our, uh, our, to our goals and our projects. And so that is what is, it's more or less like an autocorrect feature, right? It's like, and if, if it, if the neural decoder was said, the most likely thing was how are glasses but the second most likely choice was, how are you? Then this language model would say, okay, it, it's probably just a slight mistake and it should have been, how are you? So this kind of correction is really, we found made a really large difference on our, uh, decoding accuracy. So quick question on the first two models, were these supervised learning models? So did you first have to take the data, you know, your, your poncho is you're saying, okay, think about the word the, right? And you're typing, okay, thinking about it and recording that and then getting the data for your, you know, training set. Or were these, you know, unsupervised models where you're just, you know, taking the raw data and trying to filter and, and see what looks, what matches, right? Yeah, no, this, that's a good question. It, these were supervised models. So Bancho really, um, he really put in the work and he's, volunteered a lot of his time to say these 50 words over and over again. So we had a lot of samples of, um, basically him saying each word and that's what we used to, to learn the mapping. Um, now it is important to note that one question we do get asked quite often is, is this just imagined speech? Is he just thinking about it? And that is a really, that's actually. It may seem it's like trivial, like, okay, well, he can't speak. So then this must be imagined speech, but actually imagined speech is totally different. That's the, that's kind of the, the part that sometimes, you know, it's difficult for someone who's on the field to understand. So I like to try to, to, to clarify this. Um, it's, it's not only that it's so different. It's like the, the brain areas that are involved might, might be fundamentally different. Because when he tries, our, our devices work by someone who's trying to speak. They have to be trying to speak because what the signals we're tapping into are the ones that would have normally been used to control his vocal tract. These are really articulatory commands that the brain is sending to vocalize and to articulate. And so when he tries to speak, that's when we can get these signals and use them. 
Um, if we were to just think of words, for example, it, it wouldn't work. Um, and not just with our device. Uh, Imagine speech is extremely, extremely complicated and difficult. So there's been very, very limited success. Now, I'm not saying it'll never work, but um, for ours, you know, it makes the ethics a little bit easier on our end, right? Because we don't want, you know, this isn't mind reading or you know, there's no way that you would under, you know, decipher someone's inner thoughts. Like that's not, that's not what we're doing here. Our goal is someone wants to volitionally and, you know, actively engage the system by trying to speak. And then that, those signals are what we can use. No, that's a really, I think that's a helpful call out and it, it makes me feel a little bit better that if somebody were to use this technology, you know, they'd have to be encoding what I'm actually vocalizing and saying that just, all, we all know there's those random thoughts in our head that we're, that we're talking to ourselves all the time. Although I did read a paper that not everybody does that, which blew my mind because I'm one of right. those who talks. I'm like, what? No, not everyone talks to themselves quietly in their head because mine, I'm just trying to get it to shut up most of the time. Really. <laughs> um, but you bring up a really good point too, which I think most people look at this work and say for people with disabilities, this can unlock and enable so much. And yes, we should pursue this research and this is wonderful. But then it gets a little bit on the scary side because what it, what happens when, you know, maybe the data gets in the wrong hands or individuals, you know, have access to our brains. I think especially with the devices that are implanted, right? I know you can use like EEG and put them on your head and take them off, right? And some people are trying to decode those types of signals, but there's a lot of ethics concerns I'm sure that come up when talking about BCIs, right? Um, so, you know, as you're doing this work, you know, are there concerns that you personally have for how should individuals who are working in this space you know, start to make sure that they're pursuing it ethically. Yeah, that is a, a big question. And actually, there's a whole field, you know, neuroethics that is, that is really trying to focus on guiding principles. Because, I mean, if there's any lessons learned from what's going on right now in, in AI, it's that you don't want to be in a situation where the technology is outpacing any kind of you know, not just regulations, but just society's gr grasp of what's possible and what's not possible. Um, it, it is good to start thinking about these things early. And so, you know, I'm not an expert of neuroethics. I have, I think that I can give my take, but there's probably a lot of people who can also give extremely uh, well thought out and well studied takes. But I think for how it relates to our research, at least, the important parts is that the inner, this inner speech that you have and that I have and that many other people have, you know, that's, that's safe. So no one has, there was, let me, I'll say this, that there was one study that was able to, just came out, um, I don't think it's been peer reviewed yet, but they just uh, published an archives to show the world a little early like preview if you will of what they can do and they were able to decode imagined speech you know between eight targets with fairly high accuracy so this person was thinking of eight different words and they were decoding that but even you know even this and this is imagined speech now different than ours already mm -hmm. but even this the the authors describe that and the person had to be like volitionally imagining it you know what i mean it's not it's not like if one of the words was, you know, house, they couldn't have been having some inner monologue and the word house was part of that monologue. And then the authors could decode that. At least th that's the impression I got from their explanation. So not only is imagined speech so, so hard that right now in 2023, the best that anyone has ever done is, you know, eight words, but inner monologue is even further like non-volitional um, engagement of this system is even even harder 
it's such an incredibly complicated problem. So this isn't really, this isn't really an interesting philosophical or ethical take. This is just like, we're limited, you know, no one can do this. Mm -hmm. And maybe one day people can, and then we'll, you know, we'll definitely have to start thinking a lot more about it, but at least I just want to emphasize that for us, you know, I, I think we're far away and our technology is not meant to be used in that way. It really has to be volitional. Um, well, and would you also say too, or somewhat, I mean, from your previous discussion on just decoding the, the data that is coming from these sensors, we're also still limited by the hardware that we use today too, mm -hmm. right? And we, that, as you mentioned, it's, you've trained for 50 words, which is actually trying to vocalize speech, right? And we've also trained for, or soon to have trained for eight imaginary, I mean, and we're still not picking up everything all at once, right? Like we haven't even combined even then words, imagine versus, um, you know, actually trying to vocalize. I was reading a, a book this morning and I realized that I was actually reading the words of it and scrolling and the language was coming and processing, but I was having a whole other, like half of my brain was having a whole other conversation <laughs> in that of itself. And I was, I was doing it, I was like, this so seems like it would be a very difficult task for any brain computer interface to decode, right? The conversations yeah. that are, oh, she's re this part is the language she's reading. And this part is the language of imaginary language of the conversation. Who knows Sadie's having with her other imaginary self off of there, right? So. Yeah, it's all hard. Either one of those alone would be really hard. And <laughs> if not, you know, it's like impossible with what we can do now. And then both together. Yeah. yeah, and I wouldn't just caution people too to read a little bit below the headlines. I think it's about two weeks ago. You probably there was a group of researchers out of Japan, and people the the headline in the news was AI can read your brain, right? And and this and what it did, and this I think it was the most terrible headline ever, right? Because my understanding was they had people look at some pictures, and then they used stable diffusion out of. Uh, you know, decoding to try and recreate some of those images, right? First of all, it wasn't reading your brain. This is supervised machine learning. It's very trained data, right? So to me, it's, we always just have to go a little bit below the headlines. I don't know if you're familiar with that study. No, this is the reason I, yeah, I really perked up when you said that is because I was, I have not seen this, but I was call, I was talking to my mom yesterday and she was like, have you seen these folks out of Japan? They can these two people are reading minds and I'm like, okay, I haven't seen it, but I, I doubt they are actually mind reading. Um, no. you were supposed to send me the, the, the link, but, uh, I don't think she did, but it's so funny to hear you say that. So, um, you know, I, I'll have to look it up afterwards because it's probably a, a whole bunch of interesting stuff there too. But, um, this is very, very true. We like every headline is like mind reading thought, you know, it, it doesn't matter how incremental or how novel a thing is. It's just, it's something that it's almost like the, you know, the press and the media, they, they understand that like within six months, everyone will have already forgotten. It's like, how many times have I read that cancer is cured, right? Yeah. But it's obviously not cured. And it's because it, it, it's the same thing here. It's like you get a headline that someone can read minds. Um, just because this is, I think, a, a really uh, interesting and, and kind of a entertaining tangent. I'll try to make it quick, though. Uh, in my PhD, I had a paper come out where it was, it was much simpler than what we're trying to do now. It was someone would hear 10 sentences. So 10 different sentences, just 10 different audio files. They would hear it. Oh, this is epilepsy volunteers. They would hear it many times. I would train a model. And then in real time, they would hear a sentence and I would predict which model or sorry, which sentence they heard. So that's all it was. 10 way sentence classification, um, in real time from someone's brain activity. And, um, I'm not trying to belittle or anything to work, but that that's, that's what it was. And then I woke up one day and was getting emails like, can you, uh, do an interview to talk about your mind reading machine after this <laughs> came out? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and. I said, I don't understand. Like, what are you talking about? 
And they're like, oh, this, you know, look at this article. I said, you have a mind reading machine. And somehow a bunch of British tabloids picked up on this paper and made it sound like we had a mind reading machine. They even had like quotes of me in the paper, even though I didn't, I never even spoke to any of these people. Oh. Um, I think they took it from the paper, like from the discussion section, but they made it sound like they interviewed me and I told them this. And all of a sudden there's like dozens of, of articles that are saying, oh, hey, this person has a mind reading machine. Um, and it was just crazy flurry. And it culminated when uh, a news, a news show that if I said the name of you would definitely recognize was it like invited me to come to, you know, to fly to their city and demonstrate my mind reading machine oh like live God. on air. And uh, my professor said, David, you definitely should not do that. <laughs> but it's just funny because they didn't understand anything. You know, they think I can just like put a hat on someone's head and it reads their mind or something, but they didn't read that this requires, you know, a invasive brain surgery. And even then it can only decode 10 sentences, you know, this was, uh, in 2018, I think. So, um, it, it does get really out of hand really fast. And that's why like, it is really important to get the messaging right. Just to keep, keep everyone, you know, everyone has enough to worry about. They don't need to worry about people, you know, their thoughts getting like hacked or whatever. That's, they can't, there's no one can do that. Yeah, I, I agree. And the other side of things is there's so much coming out so much. I, like I said, I do love the internet very much, but we also have so much access to information that we've moved everything down to this bite-sized chunk, right? Mm -hmm. For us to be able to process it. And I think that has caused some, some harm and some problems because there's so much information we all want our article to be seen, our posts to be liked, our thing to be mm -hmm. reshared, to talk about. And so it's allowed us to optimize for sensation, right? And, you know, to me, I enjoy conversations like this so much because we can dive into some of the, the details and the questions and get a better understanding of where the technology is today and what some of the problems and limitations are. And I think to me, the, the limitations are exciting because it means that there is more work that needs to be done, right? If you came on today and said, yes, Sadie, I can read your brain and that is exciting. And here's my brain reading time machine. That would be great. But then what else would there to be, be to solve, right? Um, and I think that there's a lot of really exciting work happening in this space. Um, is this a is this a good opportunity for people to get into this work? Is it just academia that's doing work with BCIs? And I'm sure most people know of Neuralink because of Elon Musk mm -hmm. buying his own social media platform to talk about himself. But, you know, are there other opportunities besides academia to get into this space and work on some of these really interesting problems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel very confident that there has been no time in history where it's easier to get an industry job to do brain computer interface work. Like it's today is the best day, you know, in history to do that. And tomorrow probably will be even better. Mm -hmm. The trajectory seems, you know, anything can happen. No one can read the future. Right. But if things continue this way, it, it seems likely that the next 10 years, 15 years, like even people who are maybe just finishing up their undergrad or considering going to PhD or maybe even people are leaving high school. Um, I think this field will still be very active when you, you know, when you enter the job market and when you look for an industry job, if that's what you want to do. I mean, there are, there are many, many companies that are working on brain computer interfaces and, you know, not just exploratory, like these companies, they want to deliver a product. They want to make something useful. Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, uh, yeah, I think the next 10 years are just going to be filled with even more exciting breakthroughs and developments, both in academia and industry. I mean, this is a really, really active field. I think that, you know, for better or worse, you know, the, I guess, um, the focus and attention that 
Neuralink has drawn to the field has just increased interest and, and increased involvement from in, in, you know, I could, the thing is that before that it had still been an extremely active research area in academia, like this, the space is not made by Neuralink, right? This has been a long, long road and it would be an active area of both research and industry, um, development, even if Neuralink didn't exist, but it's certainly, certainly brought the spotlight more into, into the field. And yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's exciting and, you know, they had a, um, a show and tell where they talked about all the different jobs that they were trying to, you know, hire, they have a lot of hiring. And so th there are opportunities there, but I mean, I, I feel like that's, it's not just them. Like those are all important roles that, that could benefit many, many brain computer interface companies. So these include your data scientists, you know, machine learning experts, of course, there'll be, there's always going to be a need for data processing and, and analysis and understanding developing new models and all this stuff. Um, very important hardware development, electrical engineering. I mean, even material science. I mean, the, you know, the next big breakthrough in brain computer interface could be some material that enables some better interface with the brains being more stable, you know, et cetera. There's in that realm, you know, there's still so much unknown, um, on the regulatory side, the you know, clinical engagement working with participants for clinical studies, regulatory approvals. Like there's just so many, so many things that so many, such a wide and interdisciplinary skill set required to really have a successful brain computer interface endeavor. And then this is just industry and in academia on the research side, there's many, many opportunities too. So, um, I would like to take this moment to give a uh, shameless plug for our lab. We are looking for a software engineer. So, um, amazing. I'm excited. You do need, yeah. That's we have, we're actively recruiting now and we're reviewing, um, applications now. So. No, and I think this is fantastic because individuals may not know either that you don't have to be a PhD student or still in school to work in a lab, right? So these are opportunities. I'm guessing this is just somebody, a software engineer, as you would work for any company and come in and work in a lab, which I think is really exciting. I think that there's a lot of, there are a lot of software engineering needs that, you know, not even beyond data science, but just developing, I mean, just to give you a little inside look at, at like as someone who's worked in this field in the academic setting, it's for a researcher, it's, you know, what, what can you do to get, to show what's possible? What can you do to get your results? What can you do to get the publication? What can you do to, you know, to get your degree? A lot of these things, they require that your software works, but it doesn't have to be polished. You know, it doesn't have to be this really like practical and, um, uh, like, well, you know, perfectly optimized, and clean implementation. So there's just, even on that realm of just like designing systems that are professional grade, it's, there's so much that there's so much assistance, you know, I think that could really accelerate a lot of labs is um, research. If someone has like, even just front end design, like there's still room for that. Like how the participants engage in our tasks is something we, we think about constantly. So even for folks who, you know, maybe they work on front end GUIs and they're like, oh, I would like to change fields. I mean, there are opportunities. There's definitely opportunity. There's a lot, this is really important. Like what the user experiences or the, the participant experiences is very, very important too. So. Yeah, there's just so much, there's so many different details that have to come together. So for individuals who do want to get into the field, any advice? I mean, it sounds like you don't need to just study neuroscience. You could just, you could be a data scientist or a machine learning engineer or a software engineer. Um, but for you particularly, any advice for individuals who want to get into this space? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say the, um, there are a lot of things in demand. I, I do not want to downplay the importance of a neuroscientific understanding, like understanding the, like 
biology, neurobiology, and neuroanatomy. Like these things are also can be very important. Um, but if you're one of these people who just loves machine learning and you always stay up to date with all the latest models and everything, there's certainly a place for you in this field as well. Um, in terms of my actual recommendations, I mean, probably a cheesy one is, you know, make sure you do what you're passionate in if possible. If you're really passionate about this field, it helps because it's not all, it's not always just like a walk, not certainly not a walk in the park, but I, I guess what I mean is it's not always like bright and cheery, you know, there's, it's difficult and it, it can be stressful. Um, when I work with our participants, I mean, I think about the weight of their time, you know, of their, and their volunteer efforts and how selfless it is. And I, I feel a lot of personal pressure to make sure their time is not wasted. Right. Cause they're, they're working with us, you know, many hours a week, you know, like five days a week, basically. And it's like, if we go in there and waste their time, that's not good. So, um, there's, you know, that's just one thing. If something doesn't work or you have issues, there's, you know, you have to be, you have to love it, you know, you have to stick with it. And I think that that will help, but in terms of actually like practically useful advice, um, so our lab uses Python. Um, I think a lot of labs are switching to that. I would highly recommend that, um, getting familiar with the machine learning framework, um, all the online resources, you know, look for data sets, right? Like there's a lot of publications in, in the field of brain computer interfaces where they will, the authors will make their either publicly, you know, deposit their, um, data in a repository or make it available upon request. And so like get a data set and start working with it. If something like you don't even need to be in a lab to do that, you can be anyone, um, and find some publicly available data to start working with, to get a sense of it. And yeah, I think just, just reaching out and trying to understand who's doing the work that you're most interested in. And people, people can be pretty friendly to just cold cold emails you know that's why that's, that's how we got connected yeah, exactly <laughs> no and I, I just want to double down on the point you made because they hear so often from individuals trying to get into the space like where do i find interesting data sets to build a portfolio etc and i am so surprised at how many research publications if you read the fine print at the end say that they've opened the data or they give you a contact info who to contact to get the data which to me is what i love i mean i left neuroscience because i am an impatient person and, and the data collection process did not work for me. I'm like, this is too slow. <laughs> I have to do too much work. I want to go into data science where people are just making massive amounts of data online. But now I'm like, wait a minute, I can still analyze all the data from these experiments. And it's a great way to practice and come up with an interesting data set for your portfolio. More importantly, if you want to get into the field, what better way to learn about the field than actually work with the data that you'll be working with when you get into it. So like, I just want to highlight and underscore that for individuals, like whether you're looking to get into brain computer interfaces, or you're just looking for interesting data sets, like read the research papers, see if they open the data or email people, because most, as you mentioned, most people are pretty friendly and it allows us to expand our network and open up our world. So thank you for being one of those friendly persons. Oh, no, it's definitely my pleasure. And I think that especially now when things are kind of proliferating such a rate of you know, there's so much more interest and, and everything. I mean, this is really, it's really a great opportunity for, um, sorry, it's really a great opportunity for lots and lots of people across the world to get involved. And I think there's so much benefit that can happen from that. For us personally, I'll say that like our data right now, it's, the way our protocol is clinical trial protocol is worded. Um, we're, we're, I'll put it like this. We're trying to modify our protocol so that we can publish it in a public repository. The way it's worded right now, it's like really only allowed to share it with other researchers that like request the data. Um, and we've definitely been in talks to like internally to see if we can revise this. And so that's, that's what I hope. Um, and I hope that we can release it and other people can get to work, you know, on it and maybe they'll find something we missed. Yeah. 
And I think it, it just opens up things in terms for, you know, we talked just briefly mentioned ethics, but I think the more individuals we have working in this space and the diversity of people working in the space will truly help, right? To bring in a new perspective and ask the questions that haven't been asked. So highly encourage everyone to go out there, get curious, follow your passion and see where it leads. So, well, David, I again, just want to thank you for your time, for your work, for your dedication to this space. Uh, I cannot wait to see where we're at again in another two years, five years, 10 years. Maybe you will have the magic brain reading machine by then. We'll see. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> um, but again, thank you so much. If individuals want to stay connected with you or get in touch with you and your work, what's the best way for them to do that? So they can check out the lab website for resources there. Um, I do have, I'm not, I don't do that much social media, but I do have a Twitter account that I sometimes use to promote our work and stuff. And so that's at, and then the word at, and then David Moses. Perfect. Um, so that's probably the, the best way, but uh, also just email david.moses.ucsf.edu. So. Um, sometimes, yeah, if I don't, I try to be very responsive, but I can't promise anything, I guess. Hey, we get, we all understand that's how the way the world works in digital messages. So again, um, we'll add those links into the show notes. Um, but again, just want to say thank you for coming on the show and best of luck with all your future endeavors. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Awesome. And to our listeners, a big thank you. Remember to stay curious and keep learning. And we'll catch you next time on the Data Bytes podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.